Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Two more murders, 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Danger can lurk behind every corner. On January 21st, 2000, a man was sentenced for a crime he claimed was an accident. One where a girl found danger just feet away from her home. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On July 3rd, 1996, a young girl named Jacqueline Beard, just nine years old, her 12-year-old brother Jeremy, and their 11-year-old cousin Michael were out playing in a mud puddle near their home in Clarksville, Tennessee. As they laughed together in that carefree way that children do, an adult male came up to them and introduced himself as Tommy Robertson. Claiming to be an undercover police officer, Tommy offered the children some fireworks and invited them to go swimming. Excited about the new plan, Jackie went running home to tell her mother all about the kind policeman. Her mother, curious, went back to the mud puddle with her daughter, and while the kids played with their newly acquired fireworks, she chatted with Mr. Robertson for the next 35 or so minutes. Finished with their conversation, Tommy, who in reality was a 34-year-old man named William Glenn Rogers, got into his car and drove off. A few days later, on July 8, 1996, Tommy Robertson showed up at their front door and asked Jackie's mother about a lost key. After chatting for a bit, he was seen walking down the driveway towards an abandoned trailer. Not thinking anything nefarious about their new law enforcement acquaintance, After just a few moments, Jackie asked her mother if she could go pick some blackberries so they could take them to the doctor's office where they had an appointment a little later in the afternoon. Her mother agreed, and after a quick change into some shorts, Jackie was off to find what she needed. At 1.55 p.m., her mother, ready to leave, started to call out for Jackie. Just five minutes later, a neighbor later reported seeing a car matching the description of the one being driven by Tommy Robertson, leaving the immediate area, the same car that, earlier in the day, had made its way to Jackie's family home to ask about that key. Jackie's mother searched the area both by car and foot and found no traces of her young daughter. Completely beside herself with worry, she called the local police department, reported her missing, and helped create a sketch of the undercover officer that ran in the local newspaper. Almost immediately, calls started coming in to the Montgomery County Sheriff's Department, claiming that Tommy Robertson, the man in the sketch, 
looked a lot like a man they knew as William Glenn Rogers. With this information, on July 11th, officers questioned William, who at first denied even being in the area at the time of Jackie's disappearance. However, the next time they spoke with him, he admitted to being there on July 3rd and was shooting off fireworks with three boys. Then his story changed for a third time when he acknowledged that Jackie was, in fact, one of the three children he was with that day and admitted to speaking with her mother about that lost key on July 8th. He remained steadfast, however, that he had nothing to do with the girl's disappearance and denied even seeing her that day. Again, that story changed as well. And this time, he admitted to seeing Jackie the day that he spoke with her mother and to being present as she took her last breath. In what appeared to be his final version of events, William claimed that, after speaking with her mother, he backed up his car and heard a loud thud. Checking to see what it was, he said he found the nine-year-old girl lying there under his vehicle, blood coming from her nose and her chest moving erratically as she tried to inhale. Seeing tire tracks across her right calf, right shoulder, and her neck, William covered Jackie's head with a shirt that he pulled from the trunk and carefully placed her small body in the front seat of his car. Instead of going to get help, William drove her to the bridge and tossed her into the Cumberland River, claiming he did not touch her, quote, in any way sexually or abusive. William wrote out his statement, made a diagram depicting how the car ran the girl over, signed it, and even wrote on the back of Jackie Beard's photo the words, this is the girl I hit. With that, just three days after she went missing, Jackie's killer was placed under arrest. The following day, officers asked William if there was a possibility that the girl's fingerprints were on his car. And once again, his story was changed and a second statement was written out. In this one, William corrected his earlier statement by claiming the victim got into his car on her own volition and sat to talk with him for about five minutes before saying her mother had to go to the doctors and leaving. He did, however, go with officers and his state-appointed attorney to the bridge where he reenacted the moment that he threw Jackie's body into the murky river. Searching his car, investigators found a handheld telescope, a can of glass cleaner, a map open to the Middle Tennessee area, including the vast area of land between the lakes, and a missing floor mat that usually sat in the passenger side of the vehicle. No fingerprints were found inside of the car, not even Williams, and when dive teams searched the Cumberland River looking for Jackie's body, they too came up empty-handed. That was until November 8, 1996, when two deer hunters found a human skull in a remote wooded area of land between the lakes in Stewart County. Using dental record analysis and DNA testing, they were able to determine that the skull belonged to Jacqueline Beard, as did the other skeletal remains found scattered throughout the area several hundred yards away from the Cumberland River and about 48 miles away from her home. Also found were the clothes she was wearing the day she disappeared, including the shorts she changed into, which, when found, were turned inside out with semen stains on the crotch area. Although a DNA sequence could not be obtained from the stains to compare with William Rogers' DNA, the carpet fibers found on the clothing were consistent with the carpeting inside of his home. 
Because her remains had been there for months and animals had taken some of the bone fragments, a cause of death could not be determined. But when examined by experts, they found no anti-mortem trauma consistent with being run over by a car. During his trial, William's estranged wife did her best to piece together what exactly happened that day. She said that on July 4th, 1996, the day after he first met Jackie Beard, the pair went to Land Between the Lakes for the day and, on the drive back, they stopped at a picnic area off Dover Road, where, while walking, William offhandedly told his wife, you could bury a body back here and nobody would ever find it. At the time, they were just 15 miles away from where Jackie's body would eventually be found. She then said that on July 8th, the day of the disappearance, she did not see her husband until about 6 p.m. when he walked in with jeans that were muddy at the knees and a car that was also covered in mud. When she asked about it, William told her that he had been in a tobacco field on Dover Road and asking about the bloody spot that she saw on his shirt, he claimed that he simply cut his finger. She saw no cut and noticed that, even though she had given him money to put gas in the car, the tank was almost empty. That was the same car where she found small fingerprints scattered on the passenger side window. She asked William if a child had been in the car, and he told her no. She then said that when she accompanied him to the dump the following day, she noticed that the car had been cleaned both on the outside and inside though William denied cleaning it, and she thought it was strange that he took them all the way to the dump just to throw out one bag of trash. None of this made sense until July 11th, 1996, when police contacted William Rogers, and he told his wife that he told them he had been with her the entire afternoon of July 8th. She refused to support his false alibi and later agreed to testify against him in court. Calling her several times after his arrest, even promising to tell her what actually happened if she picked up the phone and would reveal Jackie's location, William finally wrote her a letter stating that the death had been an accident and, quote, just happened. It was later revealed that he told his mother and half-brother that he ran over the girl, even telling his mother not to worry because, quote, all they could get him for was vehicular homicide and wrote to his stepfather that he did not hurt Jackie Beard in any way. He even told a local reporter that he never hit the girl with his car, and that the last time he saw her was when she was walking away from his car and back towards her home. He said he only told the police about running her over because he was scared and confused, and thought that this is what they wanted to hear. Trying to point the finger at one of the other three men who were suspects early in the case, Three people testified that William Rogers applied for a job at a service station on Riverside Drive around 4.30 to 5 p.m. on July 8th, that he was driving a blue pickup truck and was wearing a mechanic's uniform. On rebuttal, however, an investigator testified that William never mentioned any of this and that there was no evidence he ever drove a truck like this. In the end, the jury found William Glenn Rogers guilty of first-degree premeditated murder first-degree felony murder in the perpetration of a kidnapping, first-degree felony murder in the perpetration of a rape, especially aggravated kidnapping, rape of a child, and two counts of criminal impersonation. During the sentencing phase, it was revealed that in 1991, William pleaded guilty to two counts of aggravated assault in Georgia and that the statutory elements of those offenses— 
combined with what he was now guilty of, was a clear indication of his continued violence. Also testifying at the time was Jackie's mother, who spent so much time trying to find her daughter that she lost her job. She also spoke about her son, who felt as though he failed to save his sister, who had since been placed in juvenile homes and hospitalized for post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and anxiety. Treatments that cost the unemployed mother thousands of dollars. Testifying in his defense were family members who claimed that, after his parents' divorce in 1961, William's parents remarried and had him on March 24, 1962. Just two years later, his mother left again, taking him and his sister with her, and later told her husband that William was not his biological son. She later remarried a man who had two sons from a previous relationship, and their marriage was plagued by constant arguments and fights. The home was always unkempt and dirty. He felt shunned by his stepfather, who allegedly abused him both physically and verbally, and when evaluated by two mental health experts for the trial, they found that his unstable childhood bred a sense of abandonment and insecurity that, in combination with the physical, emotional, and alleged sexual trauma of his youth, might have permanently affected his brain function and led to violent mood swings. He was diagnosed with PTSD, depressive disorder not otherwise specified, disassociative disorder not otherwise specified, and personality disorder not otherwise specified with antisocial and borderline features though they did testify that he did not suffer from, quote, full-blown disassociative identity disorder and that he was able to tell right from wrong. On January 21st, 2000, after hearing all of this, William Glenn Rogers, now 37 years old, was sentenced to death for the murder of Jackie Beard. On March 4th, he was given 48 additional years for the kidnapping and rape of the young girl. And in response to being called a pedophile in court, William simply scoffed. Then in 2008, a Montgomery County judge ruled that the DNA from the case could be sent back to the lab in a move that both William and his attorney hoped would clear his name and free him from prison. Claiming that the inconclusive DNA from the semen stains could point to his innocence, the 45-year-old had his execution stayed so that he could plead his case. Things remained relatively quiet until 2022, when, raising claims that he was given ineffective assistance of counsel at multiple stages of his case, his death sentence was overturned by a new federal appeals court. Claiming his defense showed lack of thoroughness when it came to that semen evidence, saying it never conclusively tied him to the murder, the ruling determined that, though their decision did not necessarily indicate whether or not he was truly guilty, there was enough evidence that made them doubt whether he received a fair trial. Conviction left untouched, this ruling meant that William Glenn Rogers would head back to court for a new sentencing phase. Jackie's mother was, understandably, completely taken aback by the verdict. She claimed that they had taken away the last bit of closure she felt in her daughter's senseless murder case. In June of 2023, William Glenn Rogers' death sentence was upheld. He remains in prison. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on January 22nd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon. 
or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.